This week's parsha, we uh, we of course read about the famous the famous story of the miraglim, of the spies, and we all know how it ended. The story with the spies. Unfortunately, they uh, they came back and they they uh, did not have such great things to say. From their perspective, they were they were saying the truth from the truth how they saw it. And two of the 12 uh, tribes tried to, uh, you know, to, to inject faith and belief in God and say that it's okay, it's going to be okay, but they were outnumbered. And ultimately, we all know how it ended. And uh, it caused a big uproar amongst the Jews, and the Jews started crying. And Hashem basically, I mean, Hashem says that... Uh, if you don't want to go into Israel, you won't go into Israel. And the next generation will go into Israel. And then we, as we have the regular, uh, as, as we know, the, uh, the Rashi, how that night the Jews were crying. And uh, many thousands of years later, God gave us an actual reason to cry with the destruction of the two Beit HaMikdash on the ninth day of Av. So we have an interesting uh, detail in this in 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 this parsha, when Hashem is telling them off, so to speak, and I will share the screen. I'm going to read from the from the screen because you complained about me, your corpses will fall in this desert. This will happen to your total count, everyone over 20 years old who was counted. You will not enter the land in which I promised to settle you. The only exceptions will be Kaleb, the son of Yifuna, and Joshua, the son of Nun. You said that your children will be taken captive. They will be the ones I will bring. They will get to know the land that you rejected. You, however, will fall as corpse in the desert. And unfortunately, that's what happened over the course of the 40 years. And we know that there was a certain time when they would always beg, they would always um, dig their grave. And then eventually the entire generation, they would go into the grave. And then by the 15th of Av, if, uh, if they were destined to be alive, they would come up and, 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 and live again. And the whole generation was, was, was wiped out and buried in the desert. And the new generation was the generation that went into Israel. The question that we need to understand, which leads us to our topic of discussion tonight, is how is God so sure so to speak, that this next generation is not going to sin. Maybe the second generation is also going to sin. If you think about it for a second, we know that Yehoshua, Joshua, who was Moses' strongest, closest student, he inherited him. He was his, what do you call it, the apprentice, prodigy, whatever, whatever the word is, right? He inherited him. He took him over. He was his closest student. But nevertheless, even Yoshua, Moses was worried about him, that he may also get swept up with the spies and come back and not, and not portray a confidence and a belief in God. So he added the hey to Yoshua's to name so that he'll have the strength of God's name, have Yud and hey, and he'll have God's name there. So if he was, if even Yoshua needed that extra boost of support from God, how is God so sure that the second generation is not going to sin? That's one question we have. The other question we have is, if God is saying that already, 
okay, if God is already telling the Jewish people now, before the 40 years, okay, that the second generation is going to merit to go in, where does that leave the second generation with their freedom of choice? Where does that leave them with their freedom of the of, of free will to be able to do the right thing if they ready to basically know they're, they're good to go, they're tzaddikim, they're not, they're not going to sin. How do we understand this? So the truth is that when we talk about statistics in general, statistics um, historically is something that the earliest dated statistics we have is in the the 8th century, somewhere between the 8th and the 13th century, actually, the first people that we have uh, records, the first people uh, like uh, group out there that did that, that worked off of statistics is, um, any of you guys ever took statistics at Binghamton, by the way? Matt, Matt, you did, okay. Do you know anything about the history of statistics? So supposedly, historically, statistics started between the 8th, somewhere between the 8th and 13th century, and it was mainly the Muslims that used statistics in their culture to predict what would happen to, to groups of people in this way and that way and the other way. But the interesting thing is that if you look into the Torah from a deeper perspective, you can see that the Torah actually teaches us the concept and phenomenon of statistics. So let's go back a few generations earlier to the famous Brit Bain Habsarim, the covenant between the pieces that God made with Abraham uh, many, many years before this story. Source three, when the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a trance and he was stricken by a deep, dark dread. God said to Abraham, know that your descendants will be foreigners in a land that is not theirs enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will finally pass judgment on the nation who enslaves them, and they will then leave with great wealth. Okay, so Maimonides asks a question immediately, and I'll, and I'll go to the question, I'll read here. Doesn't Torah say they will be enslaved and oppressed? Clearly, God decreed that the Egyptians would commit evil. Similarly, Torah states, this nation will stray after the alien gods of the land. Clearly, God decreed that the, that the Israelites would serve idols. If so, why did he punish them? You can't have it both ways, right? If God is saying what they're going to do, then God is predetermining what they're going to do, so to speak. So then why are they being punished? This is what Maimonides asks. The answer is, this is his uh, suggestion. He did not decree that a particular person be the one to stray. Every person who strayed to idol worship could have chosen to refrain from doing so. God is merely informing us of the pattern of the world. It is like someone who says, this nation will have righteous and wicked people. A wicked person is not entitled to claim that his wickedness is unavoidable because God told Moses they would be wicked Jews. The Torah also says they will always be poor in the land. The same is true of the Egyptians. Every Egyptian who oppressed the Israelites had the choice to refrain from doing so. God did not decree on a particular person. Rather, he merely informed Avram that his descendants were destined to be enslaved in a strange land. So what we're seeing from here is that, that the bottom line is that we have to make a separation between a collective group of people and an individual. 
And yes, you could say, right? The examples that we're bringing here, the story of the, of the second generation in the desert, and going back to the story of the Jews in Egypt, that there is this phenomenon of statistics. Now, why are the Egyptians still being held accountable for their actions? If God says statistically that this is what they're going to do, that they're going to enslave the Jewish people? And the answer is, there's two answers given. Number one is that the fact that God is sort of statistically saying, by the way, there's a separate question, which I'm sure you guys, the age-old question, if God knows what I'm going to do, how do I still have freedom of choice? It's an age-old question. That's, that's an essential question of belief in God. That's not what we're addressing tonight. I'm happy to talk about that at a different time, but that's not the question that we're addressing tonight. Tonight, we're asking a general question about a, a, a prognosis given for a general group of people and how that plays into a person's individual choice. So the answer is, number one, that the Egyptians as a whole, yes, God laid forth a statistic to Abraham, to Abraham at that, at that time, at that Brisbane Absarim, that this was going to happen. But that didn't take away the freedom of choice from the Egyptian individuals of Egyptians from being part of it. And every Egyptian could 50% chance that they would do what they did, 50% chance they wouldn't. So therefore, as individuals, they're still held responsible. Another position, another opinion that I saw is that while you could argue that the Jews being in Egypt, right, was part of the grand plan, but that didn't include tormenting the Jews, that didn't include killing the Jews, that didn't include killing the babies and throwing the male babies into the Nile, right? All those things weren't part of God's prophecy. The prophecy was that the Jews will be slaves, but what kind of slaves and how the experience went, that they were definitely held responsible for. But the main point here is, and we'll go back to the, to the, to the talk of the Rebbe. This is from a talk from 1972. The point that the Rebbe is making here is, on an individual level, every person has free choice. But in the story about Avram, Torah is telling us about broader behavioral patterns. We see here that a concept which seems to be a recent innovation is clearly stated by Ramanides with regards to a clear verse in the Torah. This also explains God's assertion that the second generation in the desert would ultimately enter the land of Israel. It is an assertion about the entire generation, and therefore does not contradict the personal free choice of every individual. So before we continue, just that's, that's basically the general explanation. Um, there's a lot more to discuss about this whole uh, conversation about what happened in the desert, but on the on the basic level, this is the the um, the explanation that the Rebbe is suggesting, and one of the powerful points from here is the idea that we need to remember that everything stems from Torah, and there's a source for everything in Torah, including something such as statistics. And here we have two examples, not one, but two examples of how statistics are uh, expressed in the Torah and 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 played out in the Torah. Um, of course, we always like to leave with a takeaway lesson for us in our lives. So this is an interesting idea, but beyond that concept that everything is in the Torah, what, what kind of deeper message can we take away for us personally in our lives? So let's continue reading. A lesson about education. This teaches us an important lesson about educating children and engaging with unaffiliated Jews. Some argue that it is pointless 
to engage in outreach because ultimately they correctly assert every person retains his own free will. After you invest great effort in teaching someone Torah, he may just choose to do the opposite. Why invest energy in an endeavor in which success is uncertain? It would be better to do something which is sure to be a result, to sit and study Torah, to resolve a difficult question in Maimonides and so on. The Alter Rebbe describes the amazing things that occur in heaven whenever we innovate in Torah learning. Even the heavenly angels come to listen to our original Torah thoughts. So the, the Rebbe is saying, you may say, why should I go invest my energy in trying to connect with another Jew, trying to influence someone when I don't have, I don't have control over them? They have freedom of will. I don't know how it's going to end up. I don't know how, if my words are going to have an impact and what that person is going to ultimately be doing. If I study Torah, I know for sure that I'm studying Torah at that time. I know I have control over my destiny, uh, not my destiny, but I have control over my actions, right? And I know that if I study Torah, it's definitely, but if I go and try to convince someone else of doing something, I don't know if I'll succeed. However, with all due respect, and I'm, I'm going back to the talk of the Rebbe, we need to strive to fulfill the directives of our Rebbe's who taught us that even if we need to leave our own Torah study, we are duty bound to go out into the street, find a Jew who never studied Aleph and teach him Aleph if he knows the actual Hebrew alphabet, teach him the alphabet of Judaism. What of the claim that engaging with others might prove to be useless? Usually the deficiency is in the teacher, not the student. The Rebbe is uh, not, you know, not holding back any, any words here. If someone reaches out to others with genuine sincerity, he is bound to see results. If that was not the case, the deficiency is his own. And if you did everything in your power, but still made no impact, it is no longer your concern. Your responsibility is to engage him. The final result is not your concern. Comparably, Jewish, Jewish law states that if you search for chametz, but find nothing, your blessing was not recited in vain. Because we are commanded to search for chametz, not to find it. If you didn't find any, that's all right. You still fulfilled the mitzvah perfectly. Just to explain, because I'm sure some of you are wondering about that, the custom to put out 10 pieces of, of chametz is a very important custom, but the mitzvah is to search for chametz. So technically, if you didn't, I mean, if you put out 10 pieces of chametz, right, and you only found five, you're in big trouble because then you know that you have chametz around your house that has not been found. But let's say you didn't, for some reason, put out 10 pieces of chametz and you searched your house and you found no chametz. Are you still allowed to make a blessing? Did you fulfill the mitzvah? The answer is yes. Because the Rebbe is making the point that your, your obligation is to search for chametz. It's not to find the chametz. So if you didn't, I'm back, back into the text. If you didn't find any, that's all right. You still fulfill the mitzvah perfectly. The same is true regarding the commandment to reproach your colleague. We are commanded to reproach a friend even a hundred times. His choice of behavior afterwards is not your concern. You performed your obligation. But most importantly, in our case, God promises us that ultimately our efforts will bear fruit. God says that the children will ultimately be brought into the land of Israel. Even if there seems to be an exception to the rule, someone out of the ordinary, it is only an individual. You will certainly impact the broader public and bring them closer to Judaism. Engaging with God's children is the perfect preparation for the spiritual conquest and transformation of Canaan into the land of Israel. 
which will lead to the physical conquest of the land. As the verse says, your borders will extend from the Ephrates until the Mediterranean Sea with the coming of a righteous Mashiach. May he come soon and redeem us very soon. So that's the main point for tonight. Um, and uh, I think that obviously uh, the Rebbe is, um, the Rebbe is, is uh, particularly zooming in on engaging someone else in Judaism but I think that this can definitely be extended to any relationship that we have, a relationship with a friend, a relationship with a relative, a relationship with anyone in our lives. And sometimes we feel like it's pointless, it's useless. Um, why bother? We know that it's not going to you know, make a difference or anything. So I could just say personally, because I, I mean, for me, it's more, it's more in the general realm of working with people, trying to impact people, trying to influence people, that you never really know how your actions are impacting someone. You know, I always say that uh, if I would be in the business of, uh, of having to see the impact that I'm having on people, I would have to find something else to do. Because, you know, most students that I'm working with, most alumni that I'm in touch with, that I'm connected to, don't necessarily communicate to you how your words are impacting them and how your actions are impacting them. Most of the impact is deep and personal and people don't feel comfortable always talking about their personal feelings and how things impacted them. Even if they'll thank you at the end of their four years, they won't necessarily communicate to you how something impacted you. But I know that, first of all, I have to, you know, I have a responsibility here. I have a shlichus of the Rebbe here, so I need to do what I'm doing, whether I'll ever see the impact or not. But more than that, I do know that things are impacting people because the few times that people do express how they impact them. So my point to you is, because uh, I don't know that all of you are shluchim or that you intend on being shluchim, but in your interactions with people, in your conversations with people, it's important to, to, to take a little lesson from this to always understand that our actions have an impact and it's not for us to put people into statistics. It's not for us to um, to box people off as a generalization and this is going to happen, this is going to happen this way. Statistics are maybe good for general uh, groups, but when it comes to an individual person, we have to take a cue from here, especially when we have a general statistic from God, like the Rebbe just said, that the second generation will ultimately do the right thing and, uh, and do tshuva and, and come to Israel. Have a good night, everybody.